It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I'm excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is a fellow Badger, Stephen Wessner, founder and CEO of Predictive ROI and host of the great Onward Nation podcast, which I was honored to be a guest. Stephen, welcome to Accelerate. Well, th- thanks very much. Go Badgers. Uh, Go Badgers. Appreciate, <laughs> appreciate the, uh, the invitation and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, you're actually still a Badger. I'm a part of the diaspora, but uh, you still live in Wisconsin. I do. Um, yep. So my wife and daughter and I, we live in uh, La Crosse, Wisconsin, so about two and a half hours northwest of, of Madison. But um, yep, we're, we're still here. We've been here for about 22 years and um, you know, really, really love it. The, probably the only place I could see myself moving to, like from Wisconsin, would be like Naples, Florida. Real climate upgrade there. Um, so, but um, yeah. Except, we, except for the humidity. Well, it, amen. But hey, you know, you you growing up here, you know that it can get beastly hot in in a hundred percent humidity in Wisconsin or a hundred percent humidity in Florida. It's still a hundred percent. So then that's why I live in California most of the time. So is <laughs> <laughs> that humidity? Oh, it is brutal. That's for sure. I mean, I yeah, I, I actually I live in Manhattan and have a, an office out here in San Diego as well, which I where I spend a lot of time and. And people say, "Oh, you must leave New York in the winter because you know the winters are so unbearable." I said, "No, I grew up in Wisconsin. The winters in New York—they're nothing. It's the summer I can't stand because it's so hot and humid. Get me out of there." Oh so, yes, indeed. it's one excuse after another uh, to come to California. So, uh, so anyway, well, thanks for being on the show, and and so take a minute to introduce yourself to the people. Well, so you know, you, you mentioned the Onward Nation uh, podcast. It's a Daily podcast for business owners. Uh, we're, we're coming up on June fifteenth, which will be our one year anniversary well, of congratulations. Doing, oh, thanks. I mean, because you know, I mean, it takes a lot of time and effort and strategy and planning and execution in order to one even create a podcast and two to create a really good podcast. And your podcast is certainly that. Um, Thank you. And oh, sure. And then to be able to do that over. A sustained period of time. You know, it's interesting. Side note: um, I, I I don't know if it was John Lee Dumas who told me this or where I heard this statistic. Actually, it might be from uh, Don Yeager, a great friend and mentor of mine. Uh, he went to a National Speakers Association meeting, and there was um, a gentleman there doing a presentation about the power of podcasting, why speakers, professional speakers, should be doing podcasting. And he shared this statistic, and you've probably heard this before. It was news to me, though. And he said that the average podcaster stops, quits. Like turns off their podcast, doesn't do another episode at seven episodes, <laughs> and 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 John Lee Dumas calls that pod fading. And so I bring that up because you know you've been doing this for a while. We've been doing it for you know a while, and the really great shows have been doing it for a, a while. And it takes so much, you know, persistence. And it's not just to be successful in life, you have to be persistent, or in podcasting, be persistent, to be persistent in accelerating sales. I mean, all of that is just kind of this common thread. So we love our podcast. It's been great. And then I own a company called Predictive ROI, which is a digital agency. Really kind of hate that term because we do more than that. I mean, we really dig into a client's baselines or analytics and really their sales funnel and channel distributions and really understand what makes them tick. 
And then what, what does make us unique, and, and many companies do that too, but what, what does make us unique is the fact that we can look at a client's data and look at their conversion rates and look at their you know, total business and then be able to say, hmm, okay, well, based on that and this behavior that we see here, we, we, we believe that sales can accelerate to this. So to go from X to Y in this period of time, and then we're even so bold, Andy, that we will actually guarantee that result outcome or our fee is is free. So um, we'll we'll write a check back for the amount that was paid. So I'm pretty sure that we're the oddly enough in little town of La Crosse, Wisconsin. I'm pretty sure that we're the only company that does that. So anyway, that's a little bit about me. I've written a couple of books and blah blah blah. But you know that's essentially it. <laughs> blah blah blah. So uh, yeah, and just so people understand, is you're not the only. One in La Crosse, Wisconsin, does this. You're the only digital agency, probably in the U.S., that's offering this guarantee. You know, I mean, to to, to our knowledge, mm-hmm. you know that 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 is indeed uh, the case. Um, and, and maybe there's somebody there that's that's doing it. We just haven't come across them yet. But um, um, but but as far as we know, uh, we're we're the only ones. All right, well, let's let's unpack that a little bit. So, how often have you had to pay money back? We've done it once, mm-hmm. um, and and I've I've you know at the time our fee was um, sixty thousand dollars a year. It's it's higher now, but um, and and what's interesting about that is, you know, this client is still a, a, a friend today, um, and so you know there weren't any hard feelings or anything like that. Um, but the reality was is that the way our contract read is that you know we needed to get 100% of the way there and if we didn't we wrote 100% of the money back and we still made it 82% of the way there um but i, I still wrote you know 100% of the, the the money back and and so um have had to do that don't ever want to have to do that again um but as you might imagine very painful lesson learned a lot uh got better as a result so but yes i i have written the check back so what's the lesson for Entrepreneurs, business owners that are sitting here listening to this and saying, "Okay, well, that takes a level of courage that, or foolhardiness that I don't have." Um, but it's a level of commitment about your business and the service you're delivering, and and you're all in when you do that. And is that is that really the issue for a lot of a lot of companies that, yeah, we stand behind our product, but we're just not we're not all in. I mean, we're not going to go to that degree. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, this lesson I learned from you know one of the most influential mentors in in my life and in businesses, and I talk about him a lot during our podcast. And he and I spent a lot of time together uh, in person, and that's Darren Hardy, uh, the former publisher of Success Magazine. And the very first time that I met him was in a private forum with there were twenty three CEOs, and I was one of them of. You know, fast growth companies, mm-hmm. and and he's and he had us all kind of in like in, you know U shape sort of table. He's in the center, and he says, "Okay, show of hands here, who has a money back guarantee?" And I'm like, "Ooh, awesome!" You know, I raise my hand, and and I was like one of I think there may have been one other person. So there's like two out of twenty three, and he says, "Okay, put your hands down." And then he said, "He goes, okay, show of hands, raise your hand if a customer was not happy with your service." And they said to you, you know, Annie, I want my money back. How, show of hands, how many people would do that? And then everybody's hands shot up. And he's okay, put your hands down. And then he looked at everybody and said, what in the world is your excuse? Then why in the world would you not just declare, pound a stake in the dirt, put a flag in the ground, something that you would do that? 
if somebody is going to ask you to do it, if somebody does ask you and you would do it because you want to create happy customers, then why in the world wouldn't you just say that up front and take the risk off the table? And I was pretty stoked because you know that was already part of our business model. And I felt pretty good about it. But I think there's, there's some logic in that question, right? <laughs> there's a lot of logic in that question. If you're going to do it anyway, yeah, why not, why not make it a virtue? Mm-hmm. So question would be, has everybody in that group now done that? <laughs> now, that is a great question. Um, I, I, I know that some have uh, because I've, I've stayed in close touch with uh, probably about six or seven uh, out of that group of 23. Uh, the others I, I can't really you know, speak to, but uh, I, I do know that it was a very <laughs> impactful point in that afternoon when we were talking about it. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's easy to give lip service to this. And it's hard to actually put it into action, but it seems like those companies that do, um, yeah, the payback's pretty, pretty astounding. It, it it can be. Now, I, I certainly don't want to give the impression to your listeners, hey, be foolhardy, like you said, run out there, give a guarantee on on a business model that maybe shouldn't be. Well, um, yeah, right. You know. And and I, and, I, and I certainly don't want to give the impression like, hey, if I do put a guarantee on this because my business model supports it, if I do put a guarantee on that, that all of a sudden their customers are going to come to you in droves and it's going to be peaches and cream. It's going to be running through the meadow, riding you know with unicorns, <laughs> music in the background. Yes, yeah. amen. You know, um, so you know, really think carefully about that as a strategy, the consequences, the unintended consequences, the benefits, and and really be clear about that. Well, and what was that in your business model that gave you that confidence that you could do that to that point? Well, I I would love to say that it was like a well planned out strategy, and so I'm offering these words of caution because you know I I really made that mistake, and and I was on the phone with a prospect, and and we'd build a, a reasonably you know, solid business at that point. I mean, we're just getting started. We've been doing this now for about seven years and we were just getting started. And this is the first time that we had, had put like a $50,000 contract on the table. Mm -hmm. And because we've been consistently raising prices and this was, this was like the biggest deal that we had written at that point. And the business owner on the other end of the phone said, you know, all of this sounds good, Steven. Um, You know, you generating leads and I don't know, all this sounds good. But, would you be willing to guarantee it? You know, we all have those moments in time when, you know, we can like hear this voice and it's like that Sesame Street thing where you see the words coming out of your mouth mm-hmm. and, and I hear somebody say, well, yeah, I'd be willing to guarantee that. And I'm thinking to myself, is that my voice? Is that me who's saying that? And I can see the words kind of like escaping me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what, what in the world did I just say? And then the business owner on the other end said, great, then you know we'll sign this and send it back to you. And that was the end of the phone call. And I hung up the call and I'm like, yes, $50,000 deal. And I'm like, oh no. my word, what did I just do? And now I have to tell my wife about this. And so I, I went home and I said, hey, Christine, got this $50,000 deal it's, and, and it's super exciting. We're going to do this work. Nah, 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 nah. She's like, oh, that's great. You know, Congratulations. And I'm like, yes, it's pretty awesome. And then there's this thing. Um, and I, like, I guaranteed that she's like, why on earth would you do that? And so, you know, it just, it, it has stuck and, um, it's been great for us. Obviously we've had some pain points too, but, um, you know, it's helped us do something pretty unique. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things sort of consider the, 
continue the the thread of talk about this is that you have what do you ask in return from the customer if you're going to do this type of, of guarantee mm. what are they going to commit to because it can't well, be it can't be unilateral there has to be a bilateral agreement that that if you've got something at stake what are they committing to do to help you achieve that uh, excellent points and um and so again good relationship with that first company um and where we wrote the check back. I shouldn't say the first company. They weren't the first company we worked with, the company that we wrote the check back. Um, <clears throat> but through that, we went through a pretty deep dive after getting through the depression of writing the check back. And literally, you know, there was a couple of days where I did not feel awesome. And then I, we, my team and I, we did a postmortem of that agreement. Uh, and it wasn't just me. My uh, CPA got involved and like, okay, this. You, and then even our attorney looked at that and said, um, next time you sign something so stupid, maybe you might want like me to look at that. Mm-hmm. And then we created a brand new contract. You know, we spent five grand with our attorney to you know write up a better template. And he's like, I can't even believe that you wrote this. This is so anti you that you wrote this because really there were no like the client is responsible for this. Now. Again, that's not being critical of the client. It's being critical of me because I was the one who wrote it. And, and so now we actually do have company covenants, meaning the client covenants. And there's about six or seven of them, depending upon what the nature is of their, their business, about like pricing and inventory and shipping. Well, and, well give, give, you know. give some examples. So something specific so that people get a sense. Because I, yeah, I think the money-back guarantee, we didn't start out <laughs> intending to talk about this, but I think it's really yeah. interesting because – it is something that a company can do, as you said, with the right business model, with the right commitment to process and achieving the goals that you set out to achieve for the customer. It can be very compelling, but yeah, you got to make sure you have to do it right. So, what are some exactly. what are some ways that uh, some of the covenants that you know, if you can, a specific example that that you embed into the contract that the customer has to live up to? Okay, so I'll I'll, um, I'll give you some specific examples, but I'll keep the client name confidential yeah, yeah, for. Yeah. Obvious reasons. Um, so, first one would be pricing, and and so we've had an instance in the past where we've been working with a customer, and 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 sales went like up, you know, dramatically at the beginning of their selling season, <clears throat> and we thought, oh, this is awesome! Wow, you know, everything that we put into place over the last couple of months is now really starting to ignite because this is the hot selling season, kind of a cyclical business, and then um, and then all of a sudden, like literally, it was like a faucet hit shut off. Like, what what happened? Um, They'd raise the price? Well, no. One of their competitors, actually, a couple of their competitors got very aggressive on price. Got it. And and this was this was not a proprietary product. It was you know essentially kind of interchangeable. And you know if you didn't want to buy from here, you could buy from mm-hmm. a couple of other places. Anyway, um, and so you know in in a couple instances, we found like some of their top selling SKUs were forty two percent more expensive on our client site versus someplace else. So all that business left. Um, or in a different instance, so pricing is one of the covenants to directly answer your question. And, and it. so it, it reads something like this that that you know, client X will or company X, excuse me, will keep competitive pricing. Provider, meaning me, will do periodic surveys of you know, pricing with competitors. If you're found to be you know, more expensive, you'll adjust the pricing. Otherwise, you know, that's, that's all, a breach. All bets are off, right. Yeah. right. Okay. And then second, is, um, second example, um, but you know, there's certainly others, is uh, inventory. You, know, you got to have the stuff. Right? Got to be able to ship it, right? Right. And, and so uh, we, we found an instance where 
all the traffic was coming. Traffic was continuing to go up. Traffic was flowing through the site. There, in and the traffic was actually making database calls, looking for particular, you know, products and so forth. Right, mm-hmm. looking for the products and wanting to add them to their cart and you know, presumably to buy. And and during that period of time, like in a, a two week period of time, we found millions of dollars in products that were being searched for and looked for, but we didn't have them in stock. And and so instead of a customer being able to add that to their cart, they received a sorry, we're out of stock, you know, please call customer service. Now, that in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean that's bad if when you call customer service, you can get some sort of resolution. But in this particular instance, you know, they were two weeks out of stock plus time for shipping. And these were like immediate needs, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so that that there is hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in lost revenue because inventory isn't where it should be. Right. Um, and, and, and so in those couple of instances, you know, or excuse me, those are a, a couple of the sort of typical six, um, you know, covenants that, that, that are in there. And in, in order to make sure that, you know, like you said, there's bilateral. Right. I like it. Well, it's good examples for, again, for people listening. Can be a great strategy if, again, if you have the right process and, and the right contractual agreement that, you know, there's no, there's no free lunch for anybody. Mm. And yeah, customers are going to guarantees. And I, I get asked in my business, somebody says, you know, are you willing to guarantee results? And we have that conversation about what they're willing to guarantee. And that's usually where it falls apart. Because mm-hmm. in most cases, people aren't willing to make the commitments that they need to. They just want the guarantee. Right. And, you know, and, and it's what I always have a hard time with. You know, I, I've been married now, you know, 23 years, and I, I have a hard time when a client or a customer, for a couple of reasons, will say, Well, let's think about how, you know, we're going to get divorced before we get married. I'm like, ah. Now, I know the, the intention of the, the statement is is a good one mm-hmm. from from the standpoint okay if we're going to go down this path and things don't go well how do we decouple so that you know nobody gets hurt and so forth and and I get that but also there's part of it too where I don't like the mentality that with some people it can be very sincere honest and there's no like ulterior motive but I also don't like sort of the mentality that can at sometimes fuel that which is really plain to lose or excuse me, not playing to win, but but really trying to play not to lose, which right. then you actually do then lose, right? Oh yeah, I mean so. that's a that's a sports cliche. We could we could drag up lots of examples of that that you see all the time, <laughs> like football, for instance. And we were talking about the Badgers. Not that they do that, but you see that in you know games where teams get a a big lead or they've got a, a sizable somewhat sizable lead heading into the final few minutes, and they start playing you know prevent defense and the other mm. team. Other team fills up the field in front of the prevent defense and marches up and scores. Yeah, it's like yeah. Every time it seems like I always get frustrated with that because it's like all right, after a hundred years of football, we should be able to understand that that <laughs> strategy doesn't work. Well, and and isn't it so maddening too, where you can be watching your team for three and a half quarters and they may be dominating the other team, right? Now the score could be close. But but you know it might be like a ten three game right and, and your team has a seven point advantage going into the final two minutes or three minutes and but the other team has not been able to move the ball all game mm-hmm. and then like you said all of a sudden we play prevent defense in order to let them down to our thirty yard line and they got a you know ninety seconds left it's like 
why on earth would you do that? You've been playing great defense all game long, and now you're playing not to lose. And then you end up, you know, they score a touchdown by some sort of fluke, and then, you know, whatever. You go to overtime, and then you lose. It, it makes no sense. Yeah. And you see it in virtually every sport. And yeah, you got it's that lesson is true in life as, as well as in business and in sports. Is you, if you're playing just to protect what you have, that oftentimes turns into a losing strategy. Amen. All right, we're going to take a short break, come back with my guest, Stephen Westner, and we're going to keep on talking about uh, how to make money in your business. Be right back. Hi, this is Andy. Connect and Sell is used by sales reps at nearly 1,000 companies, including hundreds of technology startups and several Fortune 500 companies, to overcome the challenges of getting prospects on the phone. Companies using Connect and Sell grow their revenues faster by enabling their sales reps to have more sales conversations in 90 minutes than they could otherwise achieve in an entire week. Connect and Sell can be deployed directly to your sales reps, or you can take advantage of their outbound on-demand service, which delivers qualified prospect meetings scheduled directly on your sales reps' calendars. Visit connectandsell.com to learn more about how Connect and Sell can start filling your pipeline today. Welcome back to Accelerate with my guest, Stephen Westner. And uh, we are just talking about how his company offers money-back guarantee on their services and how you might be able to do the same in your business. Great advice there. One to spend a little bit of time uh, in the last part of the show is is um, if a thing on your website you talk about eight money draining mistakes that companies make that I thought was really good and we don't have time for all eight but I do want to get into one that was really liked is you use an acronym of SMART you said companies don't have SMART goals and the SMART stands for specific measurable attainable relevant time sensitive goals I wanted to walk through that so people really understood what that meant and mm-hmm. what it means to them so let's start with where you found that acronym. Well, um, here, here again, um, you know, Darren Hardy's fingerprints are all over our business, and and that's something that I, you know, learned uh, from him. And he spent twelve months on our board of advisors, mm-hmm. um, kind of in the early days of Predictive, and and that was one of the lessons that he, you know, taught to me. And I took that acronym. I'm like, oh, okay, awesome. I I really really like that. It just kind of fit well with what we do, but also was kind of a a good a good recipe. And I like it because it keeps us from aimlessly wandering through the wilderness. Um, and it use another sports analogy is, as you well know, like most of the, like the most intense points, the most intense scoring drives, the big breakthroughs happen in the final two minutes. Um, and they do that because of the deadline, the timeline, which is really, really exciting. The the champions, the great players, they get inspired mm-hmm. as the clock gets, you know, fewer and fewer seconds in the hourglass. Um, and so that construct, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, time sensitive, really aligns well with our business model. But then it also really forces a discipline of execution, and it forces clarity, so everybody knows what it is that we're trying to accomplish. So specific goals, not too broad. Make them very identifiable. You know, they have to be quantifiable, I guess, to be that specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else do you use in terms of sort of define what a specific goal is? Well, and I think you hit the nail right on the head. You know, for example, to kind of take that a little bit deeper and apply it to our business model, we typically have about three to six vital metrics that we're evaluating our success on um, in what we call an ROI scorecard session. We do that every thirty days with our clients, and so. Vital metric number one is typically uh, the increase or decrease, essentially the delta, in uh, unique website visitors 
over those last 30 days, mm-hmm. right? So is traffic continuing to still go up during that specific period of time? And if yes, what was that specific number? And if no, uh-oh, by how much did it decrease and why? So again, it's specific, it's measurable. And then, but there's also an attainable piece to that too, as far as a goal. So we take the baseline and we project that out over 12 months and say, okay, based on past performance, we should see site traffic go from X to Y. Is that reasonable based on the things that we can do to affect traffic? If yes, great. Uh, so then that makes it attainable. Is it measurable? Uh, yes, we can we get the source, Google Analytics, perfect. Is it relevant? Yes, because if we move traffic from X to Y and we can hold conversion rate at X, then based on average conversion value, it's going to equal this then for revenue. And then as a time sensitive, yes, we're going to do that within 365 days. And so that's from a traffic perspective, and then that filters all the way down through bounce rate, through conversion rate, through average order, through sometimes even long-term value of the customer, then ultimately total revenue. So, But we can keep it all within that smart construct. Yeah, and I think for this audience, we look at primarily sales, entrepreneurial audience, is if we look at those in a sales context, I mean, you have specific goals, and you're trying to achieve X within a certain period of time. Yeah, as you said, you're very specific about it. It has to be measurable. And we're not really talking about measuring outcomes as much as talking about measuring process, right? What are the what are the underlying activities that need to take place within a specific period of time in order to achieve the outcomes you want? It has to be attainable. And this is this is oftentimes the failure I see with with companies with sales is you know, they get into dreamland about what their growth should be. And it's not based on relevant past experience. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, we're going to grow 10% this year or 15% this year, but you know, we're in an industry that's only growing 5% a year. Mm. And we've only been growing 5 so how are we going to be different? Um, and yeah, the time sensitivity is, is all important when you're setting a sales goal because you have to say, okay, we've got to get this done within a certain period of time. And actually, the shorter increments of time you can use, the better because then you avoid some of these hockey stick effects with sales and so on happening end of quarter and end of year. Right. And and, and that's a really great point for your listeners because the hockey stick looks really, really good on the P&L, um, but it could look really, really bad on the balance sheet because if you don't have inventory – um, and you can't fulfill the inventory, or if you have to go into huge debt in order to fund the inventory, and it doesn't all sell through, and you get return backs, mm-hmm. so that could really, really be detrimental to a business. And and it, it and I know that you know this, but you know more companies go out of business because of indige- indigestion, too much opportunity, than they do in the starvation, the lack of opportunity. So you really have to manage that growth very, very carefully, or it can kill you. Yeah, I mean, the hockey sticks from a cash standpoint can be fatal, right? You know, it's, yeah, we've got a lot of orders, but A, we either don't have the cash to fund it or, you know, we, we were starved the previous two months and we didn't have the cash to make payroll or whatever. Um, so, yeah, if you can get rid of the, use time as a tool to get rid of the lumpiness in your business, it's a really smart approach. Another thing you talked about, and last thing we'll do on this part of it is, is um, lack of differentiation is one that really kills companies no distinction you call it and it seems like it's seems like that's one of the things that's almost more under your control that you should be able to to be distinct should be able to be differentiated and why is that so hard for companies i i think that well i think it's hard for companies for a couple of reasons 
One, it's been my experience because they just don't talk about it. And they make the assumption that, ah, you know, somebody else will figure that out or our customers know, right? We've been in business for 10, 15 years. Our customers, our customers know. They know uh, how we stand for them. Right. And, and they don't. Um, or there's somebody working really, really hard every single day to woo them away from you. And, 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 and you're not doing anything about it. And that's, that's a problem. Um, and then, and then, uh, and then I think all of those excuses, because that's what they are, all of those excuses are come up because it's hard, you know, to, to actually sit down and ask yourself and your team the tough questions and not take the surface answers. What is it that we do here and who do we do it for? And what is the result outcome that they get in the value exchange of doing business with us? We do X for Y so they can Z. And in this distinction piece that I learned from Scott McCain, who's like mm-hmm. the world's leading authority in distinction and a good friend, is like, I think that most companies, in my opinion, don't go through that process because it's hard and they don't want to look silly for not having done it. And I led one of these sessions, this was, gosh, probably six, seven months ago now, uh, for this one particular client. And, and we spent two hours on this topic, on this topic, XYZ, in understanding what their distinctiveness was. Mm-hmm. And this was not a startup company. This company had been in business for 84 years. And they still didn't know why customers were buying from them. No, and it isn't that they're not a good quality company. They're a great company. It isn't that they're not well-respected. They're very well-respected in the industry. It's just that going to this depth of really understanding why your customers love you, it's not something surface. You really need to be able to take the time to dig deep and then say, you know, I think we need to go deeper. You know what? I think we need to go deeper. And then finally, after those couple of hours, you figure it out. But it takes time, and it's just really easy to say, ah, our customers know us. <laughs> yeah, you know the old expression about what happens when you assume. Mm. Amen. Comes home in spades, right? <laughs> and it happens. It happens in so much of your your business process. You know, we'll take sales since a sales show here is you know simple things like following up with leads when they come in. Managers assume that it happens. So one of the great holes, big gaping holes in many organizations and sales organizations is. They don't responsibly follow up with their sales leads. And these are the, you know, people are proactively reaching out to them. Mm. And it's not something studies show maybe 72% of leads don't get followed up. Um, <laughs> Holy the, bananas. 72%? Yeah, yeah. In the business to business world. And so, oh my word. So the reason, though, primarily it doesn't happen is because the guys at the top think it's happening, <laughs> they assume it's happening. And when they really start looking at it, they find out, oh, it's not. And this is what you were sort of talking about. But you just assume that your customers know what you stand for, what you do. And this plays out in so many dimensions. I mean, like when you, you ask a customer for a referral, the big mistake you see people make all the time is you assume the customer knows what you do or you assume that they know the type of referral that you want. Mm-hmm. So thinking about these things, really your point is being very deliberate and thoughtful and mindful about what it is you do is really the key. You can't just assume that people know, and you really can't assume people within your company know. Well, holy bananas, um, 72%, that is just giving me a thought of, hmm, 
is that a trapdoor in our business? I need to find out and investigate. Um, but if if I'm one of your listeners, I'm thinking, huh, <laughs> you 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 ought to be taking this pearl of wisdom that you just received here and take this metric seventy two percent and figure out if that's going on in your business because that may be a huge money draining mistake. Wow. Yeah, I talk about in my first book. I had a client that this was sort of an issue with, and they were. A very well-run company in most respects, and but he had reached a point where sales was sort of slowed up a little bit and a little plateaued, and and asked me to come in and look at their process and see what they were doing and what could they do better. and And I always start with lead follow-up because that's the fastest and easiest way to to find new opportunities. And yeah, they were taking you know three four days on average to respond to a lead, and maybe they're getting to about three quarters of them, two thirds, three quarters of them. So I told him, hey, well, you know, we can fix this really quickly. In fact, I said, I think I can fix this in five minutes. <laughs> and he said, well, how are you going to do that? And I said, so here's the new scenarios. When you get these leads come in, they got a fair number of leads for a small company. They're getting quite a few leads. They invested a lot, very well in it. Uh, I said, they're all going to go to your sales ops person. She's going to put them in salesforce.com and assign them to the reps. And he goes, okay, well, that sort of sounds, sounds sort of like we do right now. I said, well, here's the new part. At 4.30 every day, you're going to log on. You, the CEO, are going to log on to Salesforce if you're not on already. And you're going to make sure that all those leads are followed up. <laughs> and solve the problem the first day. <laughs> I bet that was really eye-opening the first day he logged in and saw that there were many leads who had not been attended to. No, actually, once we told the reps that he was going to check in at 4.30 <laughs> every day, they were all followed up. <laughs> That's how that works. So... Um, Fair point. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, so hey, we're gonna move to the last segment of the show. I've got some standard questions I ask all my guests, and first one is a hypothetical scenario. And in this scenario, you, Stephen Westner, have just been hired as a new sales vice president at a company whose sales have stalled out, and CEO is really anxious for things to get unstuck and back on track. So, what two things would you do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? Well, I, I'm not going to make this like number one, but uh, I, I sure as heck am going to use the recipe that you just gave us <laughs> on 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 that piece. Like all joking aside, I really do think that that's like super smart uh, what you just shared uh, with all of us. So uh, I'm not going to make that one of my one of my two things, but I do think that's really smart. So <clears throat> the the first thing that that I'm going to do because um, this is a a B two B situation, yes. correct? Okay. Yes. The first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to get into LinkedIn and, and and having created, I'm just going to make the assumption that I know who our ideal customer is, I know who our avatar mm-hmm. is, I know whatever it is, and I'm going to go into LinkedIn, I'm going to find those people. And so this first strategy is going to be LinkedIn, So, but it's going to be multifaceted. So I'm going to go into LinkedIn and I'm going to go into advanced people search and I'm going to build a pool of people who match my avatar. And then I'm going to go to the president of our company, um, presumably an owner of the business, and I'm going to look at that person's he or she's profile because it probably stinks. And and I'm going to go and I'm going to max out their profile. I'm going to really like bling it out. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put in you know great photos and a great summary about value proposition, what makes us unique and distinctive. I'm going to give them a, he or she a great title that is keyword laden. I'm going to go and add in 
you know, videos and like customer interviews, testimonials, get some recommendations, really do everything I possibly can according to LinkedIn's best practices to really build out that profile, make it super robust. Then I'm going to take our existing email list and I'm going to load it up into LinkedIn and make sure that I'm personally connected to all of the people that we currently do business with as well as our prospects. I want to at least connect with them on LinkedIn through the president's account. Mm-hmm. And that does a couple of things. One, it not only increases our connections, which are valuable, and I'll cover that in just a second, but then also it gives us dual platform. We can now connect with those people through LinkedIn, and we can connect with those people via email, so we kind of cross-pollinate. But then for your listeners, the reason why you want to increase the number of you know connections, like right now I've got about 3,300 or so connections in my LinkedIn account, but that gives me visibility of about 17, 18 million people through advanced people search. Mm-hmm. And so you want to make sure that you take that president, the the figurehead of the business, and increase the number of connections for that person so that when you go in then to create this pool of prospects, you just quite frankly see more people. Then from there, after I have my pool of prospects, I'm going to then um, make sure that we have a premium account so that I can send probably 30 to 50 or so in-mails a month. I'm going to write a very short, concise, value-driven, ROI-focused in mail where I send out to our top prospects between 30 to 50 times a month and I invite them to either a private conversation with the president and or maybe a private like Q&A or something like that uh, in order to start generating high value leads from our most valued prospects directly to the president because there's a lot of value in very important top officer talking to very important top officers. So that would probably be the first thing that I would do. Okay, great. Second thing yes. is I would then create a, a, a fantastic, you know, if you want to call it a freemium, if you want to call it a, um, a value exchange, if you want to call it a lead magnet, I don't really care what you, know, you want to call it, but I would create something like that that is so screaming cool and I would advertise it via popover and some banners and that kind of stuff throughout the site that when your target audience sees it, your avatar sees it by cru- cruising through the site, they look at that and say, Heck yes, I want to download that for email address only. Mm-hmm. And I know we probably don't have time to talk about that, nope. but as to why. But, <laughs> but email, we'll <laughs> email address only in order to start building the list. I'd do those two things. Okay, cool. All right, now just a couple of rapid fire questions for you. So uh, when you, Stephen Westner, when you're selling your services, besides your guarantee, what's your personal most powerful sales attribute? Boy, that's a good question. You know, I've I've had some people say to me that it's just my that it's just my sincerity, that it's just my, you know, caring, you know, giving nature. Um and 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 that I guess with that, in fact, this just happened yesterday, that, that I'm that I'm pretty transparent. You know, I mean it's like what you see is what you get. And um and so I think that that helps, you know, make the sales presentation, you know, that is very data driven and so okay. forth, just make it more personal. Good. So uh, I think I'm going to know the answers. Your business role model is? Boy, uh, my grandfather, Peter Marinitis. Okay. What do you do? Quickly. <laughs> <laughs> he was in the restaurant business for 42 years, but you know he immigrated here to the U.S. in 1920 without any money, didn't know the language, and in six years had saved all his money, opened a restaurant in downtown Canton, and slugged it out uh, through the Great Depression, was very successful, and family was always first. Excellent. One book every business person should read. 
The E-Myth Revisited. Yeah, Michael um, Gerber. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Last question for you. What's on your playlist these days? Oh, goodness. Um, wow. There's a lot. Um, but, you know, the the first one that comes to mind, uh, or, or I guess a couple that comes to mind in my Audible list are The Richest Man uh, Richest Man in Babylon and Scaling Up Then by Vern Harnish. The E-Myth Revisited again is in there. And then I'm forgetting about four or five other ones. But um, th- that's a good start. Yeah, fascinating how you went to books instead of music. Usually most people ask, answer music. All right. Yeah, I'm kind of lame. <laughs> 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 nah, that's great. So, anyway, I want to thank you for being on the show. So, my guest today is Stephen Westner. Stephen, how can people find out more about you? Um, my direct email address is Stephen with a PH, um, so S T E P H E N at predictive ROI. You can find us or .com. You can find us at predictiveroi.com or onwardnation.com. Perfect. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. Easy way to do that is to make this podcast accelerate a part of your daily routine, listening on your commute, in the gym, or as part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Stephen Westner, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com. 